This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Georgie, Georgie, they call you the Belfast boy. Georgie, Georgie, they call you the Belfast boy. They say, Georgie, Georgie, keep your feet on the ground. Georgie, Georgie, when you listen to the sound. Georgie, Georgie, put a light on your name. This is Talking Devils, a very special episode of this, and not just because I'm joined by a different voice in the hot seat um, across from me, normally joined by the dulcet tones of Paul Parker. Um, still dulcet tones, but um, the, the Irish melody of Dave Murphy. How are you doing, Dave? You all right? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad, unfortunately. I don't have as uh, as many Premier League medals as Paul Parker. Um but I do have as many as Steven Gerrard, so I, I think I'll both fit in okay. <laughs> I, I think you've touched the trophy more often, haven't you? Um, 100% I have, yes. <laughs> I wonder if he has actually touched it. Um, that would be an interesting, an interesting thing. It always reminds me of that, um, was it Fergie's quote at half-time in the Champions League final? We said, you're going to see that trophy at the end, but you're not going to be able to touch it. Um, that was the, the motivating speak. Um Anyway, we're here because we're talking about um, the book that is coming out in a couple of days' time, True Genius, which I wrote. Um, we got a few um, questions in from, from our listeners, and I thought, obviously, rather than just sit here and ask them myself, um, I'd get Dave to serve as a, a very capable interviewer. Um, so, Dave, um, we'll switch seats around and um, over to you as the sort of compare for the evening. <laughs> Well, uh, first of all, I want to I want to I want to thank you for uh, inviting me on. You know, I always love talking about Manchester United, and I love talking about Manchester United with you. So, I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and and ask you uh, ask you some questions and kind of delve into the, the thought process and the actual whole overall process of, of writing this book on George Best. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate that. So, yeah, let's get uh, let's get right to it. Um, as we know, many many books have been written about George Best, one of the greatest players the world has ever seen, probably, you know, the greatest player Manchester United have ever seen anyway. Uh, mm. So a lot has been written about George. Uh, a lot has been uh, talked about George as well. 
Now, we're coming up to his 75th birthday, uh, what would have been his 75th birthday, and uh, you released an absolutely fantastic book on George Best. Um, with that, with that said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to go straight into the first question because it leads into that. It comes from Mike Pieri, and the question is: the process of synthesizing the research and interviews to put them into just 480 pages. How did you? How did you actually? Although 480 pages sounds like a lot, how did you actually get it all into 480 pages? Given that you know George has such a you know, illustrious career uh, with, with you know, most notably Manchester United. Um, I mean, how were you able to, I'm going to use the word, squeeze it into 480 pages? <laughs> um, yeah, I think what Mike suggests, because obviously for anyone who is listening to this and doesn't listen to the Shoot the Defence podcast, I did um, uh, the first interview for the book with Mike and he asked me a bunch of questions, but he forgot to ask this one. Um, so that's why he's, um, through thrown this in as the opener, um, but he, basically what he's saying is that they could have been even more, and he's right because honestly, I think honestly that is where a good editor comes in. Um, when you write something on George, even when you decide to do it, and you know we had those conversations for people who again who don't know, Dave is one of my best friends, and we, whenever I'm deciding to write a new book. I'm, you're pretty much the first or second you're in that pool of people who are the first people that I talk to is this a good idea should I do it what can I add and, and even when you do decide to do it and you go down that path that I chose to go down then you want to exhaust every avenue and so the issue with writing a book on someone like George is that a lot of people have already told their stories um, people like Dennis Law and Bobby Charlton and Mike Summerby um, you've heard some of these incredible stories from those people and so I thought it was about getting as much as I could from elsewhere that was you know really for me about getting as many stories from his youth team days as possible or alternative takes on the great stories and great goals that he scored uh, obviously in, in some areas as a writer um, you naturally you don't want to lose anything um, when when you're writing, when you you know when you've written a book and it's coming to the edit, you don't want to lose anything. And over the years, if if you are lucky, you pick up good advice. And I have to thank in particular Rob Smythe, who, who gave me some great advice when I sent him. It was the um, one of the drafts of Case Rasar actually, and he sort of gave me some suggestions about. I guess you call it technical advice, where. He, he was talking about constructing certain sentences to emphasise certain points and. Um, it really helped um, me refine my way of writing that book in a way but also he said to me at the same time he said I'd like to see a lot more of you in there and when someone like Rob who you know has written so much on United and um, I respect him um, immensely when he, he sort of gave me a new sort of confidence really that you know that I felt like I was worthy of expressing myself I felt emboldened to do that in this book as well but it's like when you're trying to craft it for, from what you've got down into like a, a smaller amount, you, you're sort of pruning it like bonsai trees. And in, in my own edit, I did, I did the prune. By the time it was ready to send into the publisher, I was hoping as little as possible would be cut from it. But I did warn them in advance, you know, it's going to be over the word count, which was originally given to me. So they were prepared. I don't know what their original hope was, but I know it was revised. We talked about this, Dave, as well, you know, 
when um, obviously it was on the listing on Amazon, everything four four eight was the page guide, and that's what I was expecting it to be. But then it got um, it got moved to four hundred eighty. Um, the truth is, obviously, it could have clocked in at, at four at five twenty or even five thirty pages, or maybe even higher than that. But like I said at the start, um, I think that's the value of having a great editor to make things like concise in order to have that greatest impact to storytelling without losing the detail. Um, but it was was not an easy job. One one thing that that as you said earlier on in this, um, you you kind of rely on a, a very closed uh, circle, a small circle of friends and family to to talk about you know, your upcoming projects. And I do recall the conversation we had where, where you said that you wanted to write a book about George Best and you were very nervous and very anxious about it because of his legacy. And But when, when you actually talked me through the type of book you wanted to read, or you wanted to write, I'm sorry, um, a light bulb went off in my head and thought, you know what, no one has ever written a book that I know of um, just about George Best and the football. Mm. And, and his achievements, um, which, you know, I, I, at the time I thought it was an absolutely fantastic idea. And, and I'm sure it's going to be very well received. It already has been from anyone that, that's either, you know, read paragraphs or has got advanced copies of the book. Um, and I think they all agree with it, with, with the same thing that I've just said, is that it, it is a very different George Best book, and it's one that's never been written. It's, it's actually to celebrate George Best, you know, because because there's that old cliche out there that, you know, that George Best never fulfilled his potential. I mean, an absolutely ridiculous statement. I'm sure you've heard that a few times. Mm. Anyone that reads this book is going to come away thinking, you know, oh, my God, there, there was another side to George Best and it was the footballing side. Because it could be argued that the footballing side and the off-the-field off the side kind of uh, go hand in hand when you talk about George Best, but in this book it solely concentrates on that side, the footballing side, which is what we all as supporters want to read really, really looking forward to the launch, I'm sure it'll be hugely successful and it was absolutely fantastic idea to go down that road Thank you Matt, I appreciate that So coming up right now we've, we've got a couple of clips of interviews from players who played with George and the U team First of all we got Eddie Harrop and then you'll hear from Jimmy Rimmer. I remember best about George is after I finished, and I'd be about 18 or 19, me and my then girlfriend, who is now my wife, was walking down Market Street on the left-hand side, near, which is Primark now, which was then Lewis's. And George, who by that time was a big star, and I mean, you know, you know, a superstar and whatever. Yeah. He was walking up on the other side where there must have been a group of 10, 15 people, yeah. hangers on and whatnot. And he seen me and he didn't just wave. He come all, he come across the road and in them days, Marky Street was a two-way, two-way lanes, you know, yeah. to traffic and buses and everything. And he dodged all the buses and the cars, come over and give me a big hug. Hmm. And I hadn't seen him for two years, and that's what I remember best about George. I've seen some great players, and not only because he was a friend of mine, George Best was the best player in the world at the time. He used to go every, every Saturday afternoon, 
And nobody knew what they were expecting because he was such a great player, you know? And I felt a wee bit sorry for the fullbacks that he would never play against. But he was just absolutely fantastic. You'll never see another player like him again. We used to play a lot of snooker together as well. I mean, just five or six of us used to go down and have a game of snooker. And I'll tell you, it was like playing at Wembley. You know, if you, if you didn't win, you were useless type of thing. But he was very competitive. He was competitive from the start, you know. I mean, we won the, the, the Youth Cup, which is a big cup in, in England, as you know yourself. And um, you could tell then that there was only one way he was going to go, and that was up. He was a fantastic player. I came to Mickey Elliot. Tend to kick it back. Draw it. Go get back. Do it. Doing tricks and everything. Great. He was the fittest player in the team. Not just in the first team as well. Everyone thought, oh, he's not that. He'd outrun anyone. He'd outdo anyone. At that time, George was number one. George wanted to be number one. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, I can go through the team as a youth team, you know, five of us, six of us went came to be international players and uh, and a nice man. A shy man at first. Uh, a bit like myself, I'm, I was a shy man and then I got out of it. You have to get out of it or otherwise you don't succeed. George was George, but George did, did things that people didn't know. I mean, the right back, uh, Shay Brennan, used to say as well, Shay Brennan used to say, George better do my job as well. He's back tackling the winger where I should be doing it. So he said, I had a luxury in life playing. But, you know, and Shay was a good player as well, I mean, in Apple. But uh, George was like that all the time. He'd run back, if he lost it, he'd run back, you know. He's a fellow that, uh, you know, as I said, there's only one ball. Mm-hmm. It was him. We should just add very quickly that um, John Fitzpatrick was the other voice you could hear there as well. Okay, up next we got a we got a, a really really great question uh, from uh, uh, Ben Allen, um, and and I kind of go back to you know a lot of things that have been you know there's so much that's been written about in the past, uh, but he has a cracking question. Um, when you were writing the book, doing the research, talking to a lot of, uh, you know, the people that you interviewed, former players, you know, family, friends, the whole lot. Did, did you, what new or surprising things about George did, did you find out along the way, you know, considering how much has been written about him? Was there anything that you, that you can reveal today? Or, you know, did you find anything that the majority of us as supporters, fans, just didn't know about, or even that you didn't know about, and it surprised you. Yeah, I did. Um, I suppose the obvious thing to state is, uh, you know, right from the start, there was a story about his exit from United, which is going to be revealed in due course. Obviously, not one for for the podcast because it's serialization and the book and everything like that. And I've marked that down as the biggest story in United history. You know that story. It's very it's a small handful of people who know that one. Um but um and I guess you might want to talk about it afterwards, but um I think I can express what a big story it is when I shared I I told Callum the story and his reaction was wow. So it sort of puts that into perspective um about uh, you know, his exit from United. But the actual process of it in a way a lot of it was a surprise because 
obviously a lot of those stories about him being a youngster and playing in the youth team and the reserve team um, there hasn't been a lot written on on that so you know those stories were new I don't know about yeah surprise might be the wrong word but because I talked to them and they haven't sort of revealed well they haven't gone on record really to talk about those things before that he put across this very different again maybe not a different side of George but um, he revealed so much more about what he was like as a personality in the in the sort of lower ranks of the club and how sort of big that buzz was and how difficult it was to hold him back and everything like that so um, I've got a big chunk of the book as well dedicated to that side of of George's career, the the team in the reserves and his breaking through period. Um, but I think perhaps the biggest thing that surprised me was like losing that idea at one point that um, I would have to be creative in relating George to a mod to either a younger audience or a modern audience that you know obviously you have fans of certain eras who are protective of that era which they grew up watching in and they say that that's the best and that a player from that time couldn't be um, a place from other eras couldn't be possibly be as good as the ones from from theirs and so you think when you're writing something like this you have to sort of embellish it you have to sort of make it a bit bigger um, in order to sort of wow a, a different audience but when I was going through it it was like the stories of what he did they translated so clearly and so cleanly that you don't even need to embellish I mean one thing um, that um, was the biggest one of the biggest things um, I guess I'll be talking about a lot is the fact that he scored corners in games and he actually meant to do it do you know he did that two or, th- two or three times in his career can you imagine the hype or buzz around any player doing that today they would go mad if, if Messi for example did it in corner if, if he scored like three corners in his career and intended to do it you'd be you'd be saying the extravagance is just that's just showing off how much better that you are than everyone else but he did that and so the idea like of sort of wanting to embellish him it sort of faded away because what I was what I then sort of decided to embrace was the idea of just telling it how it happened do you know what I mean? And so I say, I'm going to ride this as it actually happened, and and it's your choice um, whether what you know you've got to believe it because it's the truth and it actually happened, and the people who witnessed it are going to give you their accounts of what happened. Um, and there's some great stories about him scoring corner kicks, um, two two at least in the book, um, and those kind of things. You don't even I, I don't even know if George best scoring corner kicks is something that's part of. It's folklore, do you know what I mean? I don't think people talk about that, but he did it, and he should be, shouldn't he? Because he scored from corner kicks, that's mad. Um, but th- those kind of things were surprising to me, that he did these extraordinary things, and all you have to do is sort of tell the story, because it's ex- extraordinary enough as it is. I think I think the I think the crazy stat about that is that he actually meant to do it. I mean, yeah. we've, we've we've often seen um, you know not not that often, but we we've, we've seen down the years players starting from corner kicks. But you know, let's be honest, it's been an absolute freak. It, it, it's not like they set out to do it. Um, and if, and if George was doing that on a on a regular basis, you know. Uh, on a regular basis, I mean, if he's done it three or four times, that's kind of regular to score from a corner kick, really. And that's just absolutely phenomenal. And you and you are right. I don't 
I don't believe that has ever been highlighted really in you know in his career. And um, we we see the most popular goals that George scored, and, and you are correct. If Bessie even scored one corner kick, they'd be it'd be on repeat, you know, all over social media for months on end. Um, and people will be fed the story that he was the greatest player ever to grace a football field. But um, to, to, to score on corners when he felt he could is is quite mind blowing, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's just, it's, and I thought that's the best way of sort of explaining the point. You know, sometimes, yeah, yeah, these things can take you by surprise when you're researching a book, and it did. So, I did know one of the stories, but then to hear that he did it again, and the story around um, how he did it, um, it, um, there was one where you know, basically, did it against Ipswich and Bobby Robson after the game had um, said. He basically said, "It's like, oh, it's okay because we lost to a freak goal, and he didn't mean to do it. And sometimes it's a little easier to take that we lost to a freak, and then that by, you know, the the quirk of the football calendar, United had Ipswich the next game in the League Cup, and, and George tried to score again from a corner. <laughs> it hit the post, um, and he looked over at Bobby Robson, and Bobby Robson just held his hands up and went, you know, yeah, all right." <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just brilliant, brilliant. Uh, that's uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, it it, it 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 is quite phenomenal to think that that he actually, you know, meant to score on corners. Because like I said, a lot of times, you know, when a player does score on a corner, it's it's because they just you know it's just been whipped in, or the wind has taken it, or there's. It's just a, it's just a freak. It's, it's not something that they set out to do. So, you know, George, uh, very unique in, in his own way in doing that as well. Yeah. Um, so coming up right now, we got another clip. Uh, this is actually from um, uh, the man who faced George on his debut, uh, West Brom's uh, Graham Williams. He he, uh, he wasn't having a good game, and he, he started off on the right wing. He started off on the right wing and wasn't um, getting the ball. It wasn't. It wasn't that he wasn't playing well. He just wasn't getting the ball. They were going out down the left hand side with um, the boy Ashton, and because we had a young fullback in there, who's uh, Campbell Crawford, he was also making his debut, and they were attacking him all the time. So Georgie Best was standing on the wing. And uh, you'll have to excuse my language now. Um, and he, we're, we're playing along and we're having a little chat, um, you know, about, about oh, this and that. And they don't, they're not passing to me. And he went, fuck it, I'm off. <laughs> and he went and, and played in the middle of the field. So I didn't actually, you know, though he, he wore seven on his back, he, he went and played as he did for the rest of his life, anywhere where the ball was. He wanted to be with it. So, um, obviously, 480 pages, Wayne. That, that is a lot of research. That is a lot of uh, interviews. That's a lot of talking to people. Um, you and I spoke throughout your whole, you know, the whole uh, process of the book. And it seemed like, you know, every other week you were, you were talking to someone else uh, about George. You were doing interviews um, over the phone, on, on Skype, on whatever. So... The question that we have now is, you know, how many? It's kind of a two question. How many? How many interviews did you do, and which one? <clears throat> which one did you did you sit back after you did the interview and and said to yourself, 
Yeah, that was that was that was fantastic. I'm I'm pretty sure they all were, but was the one you know how many interviews did you and was the one that really stood out for you that you thought, wow, this is all coming together now? Yeah, um, do you know what is funny? Um, well, first of all, one of the things I'm most proud of is the variety of interviews in the book and how, how comprehensive um, those interviews were because it wasn't just like a few words here or there. People were giving their time. And I had really good conversations with a lot of people. Um, like I said earlier, they, there's never been as great a concentration of interviews with George's youth teammates as there is in this book. So you're going to see that full picture of what he was like um, as a youngster breaking through. And and do you know what was funny is that talking to some of those people, um, they were expecting me to go down the the trodden routes of you know, oh, when did you when did he have his first drink and stuff like that. And yeah. I, thought, I would tell them all straight from the gate, I'm not going to be asking questions like that. I just want to celebrate him as a footballer. And at least half of them must have like thanked me for doing it. Literally, they were thanking me for writing the book. Like Before I'd even started asking the question, they were like, oh, I was so grateful um, for, for a book being written just on this part of him. And so they, you know, me, it was crazy. And, and those were kids who, who played with him in, in the youth team and the reserve team. And they, obviously, it's exciting talking about that sort of stuff. First of all, because I know that it's new territory, so it's, it's good content for the book. But second of all, these were like men in the 70s getting excited, you know, about, oh, this is, this is what happened 60 years ago. And, and you know, it's just crazy like the way the affection that they still held for him um and the, the the way that they would talk about things like you know jimmy rimmer and, and john fitzpatrick would talk about the goals that he scored in the youth team as if like they were the best things that they've ever seen um those kind of things it seemed infectious because you can't help but get excited by it you know it's like i would tell you stuff like that and say oh he did apparently he did this you know and stuff like that um, and then then you've got like the obviously the accounts of his first teammates who talked about how he settled into the side and how quickly he was able to show how good he was and then then the opponents that he played against um that like you said um the man who he played against on his debut um, graham williams who just spoke about him the, the clips just played um there was um ron aris of, of um sorry go on i'm, so, I'm sorry continue away i'm sorry <laughs> No, Ron Harris of Chelsea, Mike England of of Spurs as well, and I think we there's a clip that we're going to play of him at some point. Um, Antonio Simoes of Benfica, John Roberts, who was a ghostwriter for George's column when things started going wrong for uh, United under Franco Farrell, he went into a lot of uh, detail about what his mindset was like at the time, and then the people I talked to after he left United. Um, the George that you know I've been trying to capture is the one that's on the front cover of the book when he was just this sort of wondrous talent his potential was literally limitless and I think the best one another best because I think the best is such a, um, a difficult thing to sort of um, quantify but I really enjoyed talking to Simoes who played for um, Benfica and played against him in 66 and 68 because um, for him to speak so glowingly of a person who 
<laughs> destroyed their dreams twice. Um, says everything that you need to know about his, how historic George's achievements were. Um, so I'm very proud. I was proud of myself for getting that interview, and and they went so well. So yeah, um, but I'm really proud of the fact that you know, like you said, I've got so many interviews for this one. Um, it's um, it definitely reflects in the size of the book, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, it definitely, definitely does, and and you know, like I said, I, I, I was I was luckily and privileged enough to, to, to see parts of the book, and you know, uh, it, it the the range of of you know former players and new team players that that's in the book that speak about George is absolutely fantastic, um, and that leads us on nicely to our next clip, uh, which is from <clears throat> Mike England of Spurs, uh, who played against George for Spurs and for Wales. Mike England of Wales played against George. Oh, that he was very special. I mean, people like him don't come along very often, you know. He was just a great pleasure to watch. And he um, he used to make defenders look a little silly at times because of his genius. He was just a brilliant player. And uh, what I liked about him most was his balance. Yeah. You talk about people having control, um, lovely control, but he had a wonderful balance and... You know, he used to skip past people on a pitch that had been rained on and it might have been quite heavy. And his balance on those pitches used to, you know, I used to look at him and watch him. I think, oh my God, you know, he's uh, he's quite some, he's something a little different completely. Like, you know, every time we played against Manchester United, obviously there was... Uh, you know, Bill Nicholson, our manager, and that always had the team talk. And of course, he used to always bring up, up the names of the player, you know, John Best and all that. And, you know, and there were specific jobs for uh, defenders and people to do. And, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, like we would sacrifice a player to my George Best. And yeah. that's, that's it, you know, and that's how good he was, you know. So we spoke earlier on, Wayne, about um, your uh, basically the, the, the whole um, idea around the book was to talk about George's um, George's football, um, about his success on the pitch, and what he gave to uh, what he gave to the club and every club he played for. And it's basically just celebrating George on the field. <clears throat> we we would obviously at some point get some questions about George off the pitch. Well. Um, and this next question uh, is from uh, Nick Nick Child, who says, you know, during the whole process of talking to a lot of people that were very, very close to George, and, and some that may not be too close to George, but most of the people that were around him in his inner circle, did, did people who were really close to him feel that they failed him? Or, or was it, you know, uncontrollable? You know, his mother had a, had a, had a similar problem. Um, did, did that type of conversation come up or you know did you get any feel from people that they felt sad that they didn't do more uh, for George um, because of, of, of the drinking yeah I mean like I said earlier when when I was writing it and I was doing all the interviews I was kind of prefacing it straight away I was going in straight away saying I'm not going to be talking about his drinking and if it came up it came up um, it invariably did because people you just relax and you talk and you say oh wasn't it such a shame and stuff like that um, and the the point I've always been careful to stress with doing this is yes it's a, um, 
a football intensive book. It's so heavily concentrated on his career, but it's also not negligent and ignorant of the problems. It doesn't absolve him of the problems. It doesn't pretend that they didn't happen. And I do I, I embrace it a couple of times when I think it's relevant to talk about it. But um, I did want to, when, when Nick asked this question, I was glad that he did because I, I wanted to answer it because obviously people will be asking about it probably after they've read it as well. Why why did I choose to go down this route? Um, why did I choose to specifically not go over the top about his problems? Um, but I think the, the answer is it's because those records exist. You've already got those records. They're already there for you to read if you want to pick them up or read or watch something. Um, it's already been played out in the public eye. It's already been di- dissected in numerous books on George. Um, the thing is that when I was talking to people, I don't know if anyone felt accountability for it. They 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 didn't think like, oh, I should have stepped in and stopped him or anything. Um, that most of the people that you talk to, as they will, and as they naturally probably should, is that they point the finger elsewhere. You know, they point it either at George directly, the crowd that he got in with, um, you know, the celebrity crowd or the the hangers on, or uh, the fact that he went to London a lot and didn't stay in Manchester. They point it at United failing. Um, George, in the, in the main, he took responsibility um, for it. I mean, I I think um, there was a the biggest issue was caused by the generation gap, you know, not that it was anybody's fault, but George was the, the much, he was the youngest star of that European Cup winning team. And from the moment he was the jewel in the crown of that team, when that team went over the hill, he then became um, the guy who was being flogged in an underperforming team. And his form was sort of keeping them higher than they should have been um, in both cases, but on one and you've got winning the European Cup and then just a couple of years later they're underperforming so badly that his good form was the reason why the capitulation wasn't um, more horrific or more sudden Um, so I think that's where where it stemmed from um, and and whether or not it was uncontrollable or whether or not I think suggested it's hereditary you know I don't know if I'm qualified to talk about those kind of things but from my observation of it and it's only my opinion and my observation is that you know George's family were also subjected to a different sort of life to what other people are used to because of the fact that George was a celebrity and that he was perceived in a negative way in the or portrayed in a negative way in the press um you know like I said obviously those stories are covered elsewhere I did want to make some small social commentaries about alcohol how alcoholism was perceived in those days how George's illness was perceived in those days and you know I think it might surprise some people how peripheral a role that it plays in the book although again like I keep saying it's obvious that it had an undeniable impact on his career and I don't shy away from that doesn't mean that I'm ignorant to it Um, but it is an interesting one that I, I don't think I could I don't think anybody could find the answer for because George isn't here um, and and his mother's not here to talk about those kind of things and the other people, like I said, they, most most people just sort of say that the responsibility laid with um, certain parties. Do you know what I mean? Everybody lays the point, uh, lays the blame and points the finger somewhere. 
No, and that that is you know it, it, it is a very tough question to ask, but it, it it's a very very uh, to answer. It's a very very good question to ask. Though. Um, yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, I I appreciate you uh, you know you, you responding to it because I I, I know. I know the book is 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 all about celebrating George um, on the field, and you wanted to kind of, you know, stay away from the off the field, be it you know, be it the the celebrity lifestyle, the drinking, you know, the, the, everything that came along with that. So I do appreciate you actually answering the question. It is a good question, and I appreciate you appreciate you answering it. Um, so this leads us into the last clip. Uh, it's uh, it's from Antonio Domoez of Benfica. Um, he was, let's, let's, I mean, what's the best way to put this? Tortured by George in 1966 and the 1968 Cup final. Um, but he's, from what I've, what I've read and what we've talked about, he is very, very complimentary about George. And, and for, for a player to, to come out and be complimentary after being absolutely put through the ringer on, on, on probably the two, you know, biggest games of his career um, is, is, Shows you what type of a, of, of a man that, that Antonio was. So this next clip is is from him. It was very sad for me, but uh, um, at that moment, yes. But today, when I remember that game, right, and I remember she was best, I don't care about the result anymore. What I care is I had the opportunity to play against one of the best players ever doing all this special things, magic things. Alright? And today I enjoy remember that. Doesn't matter if we play with eleven or twenty two. It was a kinda um a tornado hurricane yeah. in that game. Because he was all over the place, dribbled all over the place and scored goals. Yeah. No, I mean uh, when, when he talk about football and see this guy all over the place, dribble people, give them the passes, and then receives again, and dribbles again, and score goal, I mean, you you cannot miss it. You have to pay the ticket and, and sit down and enjoy. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here a bit in a bit now, but I, I do have one or two more questions. This one comes from Martin Spencer. Ask. Uh, if the possible room would return to United in nineteen eighty one for George, is, is that discussed in the book? Yep. Um yeah, it is it's covered as thoroughly as I could as well. I got all bases. Very lucky that um I know Martin Edwards and, and Ron Atkinson quite well to call upon and discuss. So they gave full comment on on, on what happened, really. Um, I, this all happened in the aftermath of George scoring that great goal in the NASL. If uh, Everyone must have seen it where he, he went around every single person. Um, I think he went around everyone in the stands as well before coming back down and, <laughs> and putting the ball in the net. Um, one of the greatest goal that the NASL ever saw, really. Um, and sort of after that, they were hoping, well, th- there was kind of like a minor hope that George might get in the, the Northern Ireland squad for the 1982 World Cup having been <laughs> this player who had been desperate to get on that stage for so long and missed out um, now he was at the back end of his career and 
they'd got there finally. But he was, first of all, he was at the back end of his career anyway. But secondly, whether or not he had the shape to do it, but he scored this goal, and everyone was thinking, "Oh my god, he, he could do, he could do it." Um, but I don't think it's a spoiler to say that in the sort of few months that passed after that goal, and and then this this rumor linking him to United, that um, it was unlikely that that was going to happen. But it is also fair to say that all sides entertained the best-case scenario before they considered how unrealistic it was. Um, I've got them talking about it. You know, they everyone has sort of come forward, and um, it's mainly Ron who sort of talks about the the um, realisticness of, of the deal. Um, but it's also worth um, saying that George himself, although he... You know, he'd sort of come out and said, "I'd love to go back to United." I think realistically, he didn't want to be remembered by United fans in the way that he was at that moment, and that was the same way for the Northern Ireland um, team as well. He wanted to go to a World Cup when he was in his peak, not when he was thirty-five. He didn't want to. He, I guess the worst thing for him would have been going when he was 30, when he was, you know, at the end of his career and his knee was having to be drained every game. You know, because that wasn't George. And it would have been a shame if that was the George. You know, sometimes it's probably better being the best player to never play a World Cup than it is that would have been the version of him that you would have seen there. And I think ultimately that's why he didn't push for that either, even though some of the players like Sammy McElroy wanted him to. Um, I think George's ethos was better to leave them wanting more than, than be disappointed. I, for one, I'm looking forward to reading about that, to be honest, um, because, you know, that, that goal, correct me if I'm wrong, was scored uh, for the San Jose Earthquakes, correct? Yep, yep, that's the one. That's a, um, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a place I, I frequent, you know, throughout the MLS season, because I'm, I'm pretty close to San Jose, and um, they still talk very fondly of George Best, uh, even in their new stadium, they still talk very fondly about George Best, even though he wasn't there for a very long period of time. Um, he's definitely made a huge impact, and obviously that goal, for me personally, is is his best goal he's ever scored. And like you said, he went around, you know, everyone on the pitch in the stand, and even in the concession stands underneath <laughs> it. <laughs> An absolutely phenomenal goal, and they they really really love George Best out here still, which which is the mark of a man, the mark of a player that he was. And and, and I and I and I guess, you know, his his his. Obviously, his thinking behind not coming back to United in 1981, and I think he hit the nail on the head there. You know, he wanted, he didn't want you know the fans to remember him like that. He wanted them to remember him in all his glory through uh, the 60s and the early 70s. So, um, that, that's all we got for now, Wayne. Uh, just, just got to ask you, you know, where, where can we get this book? You know, we, we <laughs> is it? I assume it's on Amazon. But what other options do people have of getting this book? Yeah. It's funny you mentioned San Jose, by the way. Um, before I before I go into that, one of the people I talked to for the book was Chris Dangerfield, who was um, George's brother-in-law, and have made a pact to go and see him. I think we both got invitations, you and I, to go to go down there. And we, I think he still works for the Earthquakes. Do you know what I mean? So, to to go and yep. take him a book when we're allowed to do that. So, um, definitely looking to go and sort of see the scene of the crime so to speak um yeah people can get the book um in a number of places really you've got amazon um the reach reach publication that reach sport i should say the um publisher 
Services and they they're doing worldwide shipping. Book Depository also do worldwide shipping. But you've also you've got Amazon, you've got W H Smith, all those kind of places. The book's going to be in hardback and ebook. Also, I think Asda, <laughs> the supermarket, will be doing um, copies as well. So quite quite chuffed with that. Um, <laughs> Apparently, not many books get uh, sports books get picked to go there, so that's going to be one place it's available. So it's going to be everywhere, yeah. Um, and, and thankfully, we're coming out of lockdown for for it to be available in those places as well. So, yeah, um, just really appreciate all the support, all the patience from everyone that basically follows me on social media but also like you know friends like yourself who you've been there every step of the way and I, you've seen me now you know that I'm posting a lot about it and the patience that you've got to not wring my neck sometimes is um quite admirable so um so, <laughs> well done you <laughs> <laughs> no no it's it's you know it, I know I know you're I know you um I'm, I'm sure it's like every writer they they have that they have that thought process in their head and then it gets to the point where you know is this book going to be well received you know am i writing it am i doing it well am i am i doing his legacy justice but if, if social media is 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 the is like the the benchmark here for 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 your books i think this book will do very very well everyone's very keen and very excited to uh, to read it uh, based off the back of, of previous books like you know the david beckham one king eric uh, Fergie's Fledglings, which is one of my favourites. Although King Eric did nudge it out there recently, so um, I, I expect the urge to nudge out King Eric. So no pressure there at all, man. No pressure at all. Um, your books get better and better. Um, so I'm I'm really really looking forward to this one. Um, but I, I do have one final question that I do have. You spoke about uh, serialisation as well. I know I think the Irish Independent that carried. Uh, uh, Serialization on the book uh, on the weekend at the weekend on Sunday. Is is there is there uh, more of that coming up over the next couple of weekends? And 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 who is actually going to be doing it? If it is, yeah, um, it's going to be um, the. So it'll be carried across like the Daily Mirror, I believe, the Manchester Evening News, and possibly um, the Daily Star and Daily Express as well. Uh, well, like I said earlier on, if. if if social media is the media is the barometer for measuring uh, these type of things, well, I don't think you've got anything to worry about. Um, you've you've seen a lot of replies, you've seen a lot of comments. It's been very very well received even before it's, it's actually come out. So that should that should help you uh, sleep at night a little bit easier. I'm I'm pretty sure you're still pretty anxious to get it out there so so people can actually get stuck in and give you more feedback. So. You know, as always, um, it, it, it's a pleasure talking to you about Manchester United. And um, I know this book is going to be a huge success. So I look forward to, to reading it and I look forward to seeing uh, the applause that you're going to get. Because, you know, you're a good friend. You, you, you put your heart and soul into this book. I know I know you and I have had many, many long talks about it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm ecstatic to see the response that it's received. Uh, from the advanced copies uh, that that have been sent out, and this is just the start of, of the applause that you're going to get. Again, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, inviting me on to to uh, talk about um, through genius. The Talksport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club. Because we're not just fans; we're a team. 
With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.